We're going to read the first four verses of uh, Hebrews 2 this morning. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Let's pray. Our Father, it is good to be with your people worshiping you today. Thank you. Thank you for the joy that we have in in singing your praises and in reading your word to one another. And fathers, we now look to that time in the service when you speak to us through your word. We ask that you would do precisely that. And we invite you, O God, to hold absolute sway over our hearts, to fill our minds with truth, to grant us the grace that we may trust that truth, and that we may walk in holiness before you. Father, we pray for our Sunday school class, and in particular for our children. Our desire is that through the Sunday school ministry, you will bring our children to a saving knowledge of you. Grant that they may understand the truth of the gospel, and that in understanding, they may commit themselves to that truth. And grant that they may walk the entirety of their lives with you, their God, and their Savior. And for us, Lord, please change our lives. Help us to know and to be empowered that we might stay the course. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll see that the the title, if you will, or the main proposition of the the sermon this morning is to stay the course. And I was kind of looking up that that phrase to kind of understand uh, where it came from, and and there's uh, a a lot of different ideas about it. There's a, a nautical element to uh, the phrase that, that's kind of obvious, to, to stay the course. We recognize that in, in, in thinking of that in nautical terms and thinking about what it, what it might take in order to stay the course. As you're, you're in a ship and you're moving across a body of water, there are various things which would be blowing you off course. And you recognize that these would be, be difficulties, whether it be a storm coming in or the currents that are there. And, and you have to keep uh, working hard to keep on the course that you're, that you're heading to as you face obstacles undaunted. But there's also a, a political uh, aspect of, of this uh, phrase that, that goes back to the early part of the 20th century when it was used within political campaigns. And there it means that you're, you're able to overcome opposition and ignore criticism. To overcome the opposition and ignore the criticism. And you can see how important that would be in a, in a political environment that uh, no matter what, uh, you're, you're going to have people who are against you. I, I always think that it's uh, one of the hardest jobs in the world would be the President of the United States because no matter what, when you're elected, if you, if you have a landslide, you still have uh, 45% of the, the country that's against you. Right, and so it's like, wow, well, that's awesome. Um, and I know as a pastor, we typically will talk, and and if there's uh, more than a couple people who vote against a pastor coming, it's like, well, we don't accept that call. Uh, so you, thinking of that, what if what if forty five percent of the congregation were against me, right? And and that's kind of where they start. Well, well, how do you how do you deal with that? And and sometimes criticism is is valid, and sometimes it's not. And and to, to stay the course and say this is this is the direction that we set, this is the direction that we determined, this is the direction we've elected. We're elected to do, so we need to stay the course. 
And so I want that picture to, to kind of be in our mind as we begin to think about um, this passage in particular, that, that we don't want to stray from the goal. Now, if you look at, at this passage, uh, you, you see the, the central focal point of this passage really is found in uh, verse 1, where he says um, that we should not drift away from it. Okay? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Why? So that we do not drift away from it. This whole passage revolves around that idea. What the author of Hebrews is, is, is pointing to us is the need for us to stay that course. Now, the, the book of Hebrews, remember, is written to uh, basically Christian or believers from the Old Covenant. They were individuals probably who, who grew up within the Jewish community. And Jewish means tied to Judah, which was the, the southern two tribes, which is all that was left of Israel at that point. But these are the descendants of, of Abraham, and that's where the, the term Hebrew comes in. And so these, these descendants of Abraham are, are, are together, and, and they've been walking with God. They've been faithful to the old covenant. They've been believing in him. But now they're in this transition time, and that the Christ that they've been looking for has now come. And no one could anticipate what that would look like and how that would change. I mean, many people thought, well, when he came, he would destroy Rome and just set up his own kingdom. And he, they're finding out that's not the case. That's not what Jesus did. But instead, he was crucified. He's raised again. They believe all that. But how does that affect us religiously and what we do in our worship? Do we continue to, to go to synagogue? Do we continue to go to the temple? Do we continue to offer sacrifices? What do we do with Jesus in the midst of our religious environment. And it'd be very easy that, that as they're experiencing all of this, this information and all of this change, what do I do? They need a message to say, you want to stay the course. Because you had the Old Testament, you had the Old Covenant, which got you off on a good start. That got you going the direction you need to go. Don't just give up on that and, and turn. The New Covenant hasn't completely set aside the old. It isn't as though, well, now there's a new way of salvation. No, 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 no. No, it's just more fully understood. And so he's saying, stay the course. And that's going to be a, a, a theme throughout the rest of this book. But in particular, in this section, he's trying to draw that to their attention, showing them that even though the Old Covenant was a good start, the New Covenant has clarified the goal, so stay the course. Now I think of this, in particular, when I think of our covenant children. Because I think of our covenant children, and, and they're raised within... The covenant. They're raised within the church. They're raised where the gospel is all around them. They're raised where the Bible is, is, is taught to them and where they're reading it and people are reading it to them. And this is very much a part of their lives. And what do they need to do? Well, they need to stay that course that we're getting them started. And they need to learn all of the message of the gospel. And then there's a point where they have to make the commitment and say, but this is my faith. This is what I believe is true. This is my God. This is my Savior. This is my Lord. And I will stay that course that I've been started on by all of the teaching and, and all of the prayers that I've been given throughout my life. I'm going to stay that course until I reach glory. We, too, can stay the course. How? That's what I want us to look at. I believe there are two ways in which this passage uh, shows us that we can stay the course. And the first is that we stay the course when we pay attention to the Word of God. To pay attention to the Word of God. He says, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention 
to what we have heard. Notice he doesn't say we need to ignore what we heard in the past and just look to that which is new, right? He doesn't say ignore the old covenant and only look at the new. He says we've got to pay much closer attention to what we've already heard, that message which we've already received. And, and the, the phrase, much closer, um, could be translated, and I, I love this as I, I ran across this and began to understand it, more superabundantly. Think about that. So we must more superabundantly pay attention to what we have heard. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if there's a whole lot more emphasis that could be given to uh, the idea of how close we need to pay attention to what we have heard. Um, have you ever been driving along somewhere, maybe on a, a, a long drive, and you, you kind of become aware of the fact that you have really no memory of the last several minutes or several miles? And it's, I don't know about you, but that's always startling to me, and it's a little bit frightening. It's like, oh my, you know, I, I could have run over like eight people or something. I, ho- I hope that's not the case. What, what, what's happened in my mind? And, and I, I compare that with, um, I think I've, I've shared that uh, during seminary in Colorado, I had the uh, opportunity to serve on a volunteer ambulance corps, and I was a driver, um, and that was all my job was, was to drive. And uh, one, I think it was uh, Halloween... 1990, we got a call, and there was a huge snowstorm coming down. And we were called out. There was a, a group of people who were sledding, and a young uh, 16-year-old girl had broken her uh, femur and uh, was in, in pretty rough uh, shape. And it was very hard to get her out because she was up on a mountain, and we had to, to actually pull her on her sled in order to get her, I think it was about a half mile, to the to where we could park the uh, ambulance, and we loaded her in the ambulance, and we had to drive down off of the mountain into Pueblo, Colorado. And uh, so normally that was about a 45 minute to an hour drive, um, even in an ambulance. Um, but we had this blizzard going, and, and all of this snow, and I will remember the concentration, as I know this young gal is in the back, and, and she's feeling horrible. Um, and we're going down, I think it was part way that the, the painkiller that they'd given her of some sort wasn't working so well anymore, and, and I'm, I'm holding on to that steering wheel, and I've got that snow coming at my face, and I'm trying to make sure that we're not going off the side because it's down through this, it was, it was intense. And I remember to this day that drive to Pueblo and the joy I felt when we got off the mountain and the snow lifted and I could just really open it up and, and get where we needed to go. But that's the difference, right? That there are times in which your focus on driving is such that you can remember almost every moment because the situation demands that. I mean, imagine the difference between going for a hike. And when you're on a hike, you know, you look at the trail and you notice the trail and, and you're going along and, and it's there. But notice the difference if you're walking on that trail and you knew that you had lost your engagement ring on that trail. How much more attention you would give to that trail as you're walking along it when you're specifically looking for that. And I think that's the emphasis that the author of Hebrews is trying to give to us, that we have to pay much closer, more superabundant attention to what we have heard. It really needs to be a focus. We need to be sure we don't miss anything so that it is etched into our mind and can never be taken away. Because the situation is that important. The author here of Hebrews exhorts such attention to what we have heard to, first of all, consider the Old Testament. 
He turns our attention, first of all, to the Old Testament. He shows us something of the authority of the Old Testament. For he says in verse 2, For if the words spoken through angels... That's where he begins, is to say the, the words spoken through angels. Now imagine the authority that would come when an angel stands before you and gives you a message, right? Remember Zacharias, uh, John the Baptist's uh, uh, father, who questioned the angel who came to give him the message. And for that, he got to uh, live the next nine months without being able to speak, right? Um, Because he says, uh, I stand before the living God. And it's like, yeah, probably shouldn't have asked that question, right? Because the authority, well, he says that about this, that if the words spoken through angels, he begins there. Now, angels can mean a couple different things. It's a transliteration, not a translation. An angel means messenger. And so it may have in mind, the author may have have in mind, of, of angelic beings, the spirit beings who have spoken in all of their power of those who dwell in the, the very presence of God. Or it may mean the messengers of the Old Testament, the prophets, which also has tremendous authority too. It was the prophet that would stand before the king and tell the king, you're in sin, you need to repent. It was the prophet who was able to look at uh, King David and say, you're the man, not in a good way. You're the guilty one that you just condemned to death that you said should be destroyed. You're that man. And a prophet could do that without really having to be that concerned because he understood that as as the emissary of God, he had all of the authority of God behind him in that place. And so as the author of Hebrews is writing this, he's writing to a people who understood that role, whether it's of, of the angelic being or the angel as the messenger of God. He's saying that this message, what if the word that was spoken through angels, and then he says proved unalterable, which it is, that it's truth, it's absolute, it is firm, it is established. And what he's saying to them is that Old Testament message is true. It's true. It is spoken by angels. It is firm, established, unalterable. And he says if that's the case, pay attention. And he goes on to then describe... Uh, why that's so important, for he begins to show us something of the message of the Old Testament, and the Old Testament message shows us our need of a Savior. For how does he describe it? If it proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. There's certain things that we see in the Old Testament that we, we just can't deny. One of them is human sinfulness, right? If there's anything the Old Testament shows us and reveals to us, it is the sinfulness of the human heart. It shows us the origin of that sinfulness in in, uh, Adam and Eve rebelling against God and listening to uh, the evil one tempt them. It shows us the outworking of that sinful heart. And it shows us of of our deep need. And we see these transgressions that are before us and are revealed to us in the Old Testament. And we understand not only is the heart sinful, but we see something of the gravity of the need that it Um, that each one receives a just penalty. And we see in the Old Testament what that just penalty is. It's shown to us in the Old Testament, the just penalty, by the sacrifices that had to be offered. That even for things that we would consider to be mild sins, there was an animal that had to give its life. And that, that begins to weigh heavy on us. We begin to see that even as the author of Hebrews will later say, it's almost as though without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness of sins. And that's revealed to us 
in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, we begin to see how important and, and what an incredible weight of our guilt is. But we also begin to see that, that the, the sacrifice of bulls and goats aren't sufficient to take away our sin. But God alone can save. And that's a message that we see throughout the Old Testament. Remember David in Psalm 51 even says, You don't desire sacrifices and burnt offerings. A broken and a contrite heart is what you desire, O God. And so that recognition that God is looking for something more, but in also seeing that God can forgive. And he's the only one for the theme in the Old Testament repeated frequently is he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We need to continue on. We need to stay the course considering the Old Testament. We also need to turn our attention to the New Testament. And granted, at the time in which this was written, the New Testament was not completed yet. But what, what, what they had was some of the messages of Jesus. They had the word of Jesus. And that's where the author then begins to turn our attention. You see in verse 3, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord? He begins with the authority of the New Testament immediately by saying that it's spoken through the Lord. Not spoken through angels. Not spoken through mediators, whether it's a spirit who is mediating or whether it is a, a human being as a prophet who's mediating. But no, in the New Testament, God is speaking to us directly through his son. That is the Lord Jesus Christ who has spoken. The authority in the Old Testament was, was tremendous. The authority in the New takes it up another notch, doesn't it? begins to lift that up to just a little bit more. Remember what he says in, in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, And he, that is the Lord, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he speaks of that authority when he says the message that was spoken to us through the Lord and was confirmed by those who heard. That is confirmed by the apostles. These are the individuals who walked with Jesus. Now, there were several copies of, of uh, different portions of the New Testament that were running around at the time in which this was written, and the, the Jews would know that, and they'd be aware of these, uh, whether they'd be uh, written by uh, Peter or by Paul or, or John, we're, we're not sure, um, but, but these were around there, and the, the Gospels, Mark for sure, was that's the earliest New Testament book that was there. And so there's a recognition that, these, that, that uh, each book in the New Testament had some level of apostolic authority behind it, that it was spoken by the Lord, and then it was confirmed by the apostles. And the apostles spoke them. Can you imagine what it would be like to receive a letter handwritten by an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who had walked with him through his years of ministry upon the earth? That's something we'd pay close attention to, wouldn't it? And then when he's saying, and this is what the Lord has said to us, we'd recognize just how significant that is. And then, it's not only that, but, but there, the, it, God, God put an extra stamp upon it when he testified with them by signs and wonders, by miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the things that he did within the New Testament in order to demonstrate the, the validity of his word is he gave these signs and he gave these miracles. Um, was it, uh, I think I heard one, one pastor one time, you know, was criticized for his sermon being so long, and he said, well, remember the Apostle Paul was preaching late into the night, so, that, so long that, you know, someone uh, uh, fell asleep and fell out and died. 
To which the congregation responded, well, as soon as you can raise the dead, like Paul did, you can preach that long. Okay, valid. <laughs> that, that's, that's fair. Um, but that, that recognition, imagine the power that that would give to the word of the Apostle Paul when he walks down and this dead man now comes back with life. And they say, you know, I think I'm going to listen to that. I've never seen anything like that. That's, that's, that's serious stuff. And, and so this is, this is what the author of Hebrews is, is drawing our attention to, to show us the authority of the New Testament. We believe the Old Testament. It has a proper authority. We believe the New as well. And this is important in speaking to these individuals in the midst of this transition. So the New can also believe, be believed. And we must trust it. And we must trust what that message is. Just as we saw something of the, the message of the old in, in the words of the author, we see something of the message of the New Testament, uh, that the New Testament shows us the gospel. The gospel. And I want to remind you of the gospel from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. God doesn't leave us to just decide, well, we decided this is what the gospel is, and, and there is that element sometimes we run into that, that uh, we, we, we value the gospel, and so then we want to say everything we value then is gospel, and that's not true. The gospel has a very specific meaning. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. This is Paul. This is one of those who had heard. Paul is writing. This is one of the individuals that, that the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is talking about. And don't get uh, lost in his explanation. He's saying, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel. That's what he's writing about. And what is that gospel? For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the gospel message. And that gospel message is clearly shown in the New Testament, to where there's no question anymore. And that message is that Jesus is our sacrifice. In particular, spoken to these Jewish believers to know that Jesus is our sacrifice, to know that that animal that we would have sacrificed in the Old Testament is actually replaced by Jesus who himself gave up his life and his blood was shed for our sins. And that recognition that Jesus is the one that we look to and Jesus is the one who frees us from sin and from death. And this is the message of the New Testament, and the message which is so clearly there. For he puts it this way in verse 3, how we, will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Pointing us to that great salvation which Jesus has provided for us. He tells us, stay the course. And to stay the course, we've got to give careful attention to the message which we have heard, to the Word of God to look at it and to see in the Old Testament and in the New this consistent message of salvation through Jesus Christ. And then we're able to stay the course. To stay the course, we must also embrace the gospel that we have just read. In verse 3, he says, How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This great gospel. John Calvin, in his uh, commentary on this passage, had this to say about uh, neglecting this great salvation. He says, not only the rejection of the gospel, 
but also its neglect deserves the heaviest punishment, and that on account of the greatness of the grace which it offers. Not just the rejection of the gospel. We think of that, and sometimes we just we, 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 we rest at that and we say, okay, so yeah, if you reject the gospel, okay, I see that you're not a Christian and you're outside and, and God's wrath is there. But to begin to understand, but also it's neglect. That we who are believers, who know the gospel, we believe the gospel. We know it to be true. We've been taught it from youth. Are to not neglect it each and every day but that it has a role to play in our lives. Romans 1.16 tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the power of God unto salvation. And we look at that, and it's so easy to just think about that. It's the power of God for, for, for the dead to live. Yes, it is also the power of God for the living to continue living. We were uh, in uh, Rocky Mountain National Park on our vacation. Um, so in, in Colorado now, I, I, Rob and I both grew up in Colorado Springs, and so we grew up at over 6,000 feet. And uh, I would go up in the summers and spend time with Dad uh, on occasion up at Estes Park, uh, which is at the, the foot of uh, Rocky Mountain National Park. We'd go up in a national park, and we'd run around. We'd traipse around uh, Estes Park all the time. It was no big deal, right? Because we were acclimatized. We were used to that. Uh, a lack of oxygen was life for us. You know, that's how, that's how we lived. Coming from here, it was quite different, uh, my experience there. Um, I, I, I found my knees multiple times as I'm trying to walk around and realizing there's not a whole lot of oxygen up here. There's over a mile less oxygen between me and, and the heavens of heaven and, and, and that lack, that shortness of breath and the headache that would come with it and, and, and all of that would be there. And so we found in the motel we were staying in that they had these little canisters. I never had, saw this when I was a kid, a little canister of oxygen that you could uh, put up against your face and give yourself a, a, a little blast. And I said, well, so of course, like anyone would do these days, I googled it. <laughs> Is that going to do you any good? And I said, oh yeah, it'll do you good when you take it. But then you still don't have oxygen around you. You still got the same problem. You know, unless you've got it continually coming in, it's, it's just not going to be the, the solution. It's like, ah, that's a little like grace, isn't it? That's a little like the gospel. I need it all the time. I need it unceasingly. I need to be certain that I'm not neglecting it ever at any point in my life. That every instant, I am constantly drawing the salvation of Jesus Christ into my life. Knowing that embracing the gospel means I know that I'm free from condemnation. Have you ever felt judged? Where you feel like every eye is on you and they're noticing every flaw, they're aware of every failing. And that sense, and, and, and it's with a condemnatory look. Sometimes it's not true, but when it's there, it's an awful feeling, isn't it? It's just horrible. You feel unaccepted. You feel ashamed, right? And shame is, is that powerful emotion that we feel that we're judged that we have not lived up to the standard that we ought to. I've been uh, reading for quite some time a book by Dick Kyes called uh, Beyond Identity. And in this, he, he talks a little bit about the difference between guilt 
and shame. And he, he talks about different standards that we all have in our life, that we have moral standards that, that we seek to live up to. And when we fail to reach those moral standards, we feel a sense of guilt. But we also have models, and that is those that we, we, we the, the character that we want to live up to. Um, and, and whoever that might be. Now, today, many, um, the, the models are, are Hollywood, right? And so, and, and think about what, what sometimes people face when they're unable to live up to the, the standard of the models of Hollywood. Those, the, you know, and, and the photos that they see, which, you know, they come to realize are all touched up and, and perfected when in reality people aren't that perfect. But, but, but then the shame that a person feels that, that their body doesn't match that model and it's that shame and so he looks at that as the difference that that shame is when we fail to live up to the model of of what we expect and and for men sometimes you know i i've got to be like dad right dad did things right and when i don't i i feel ashamed that i haven't lived up to that model of of what it ought to be or again maybe the hollywood uh manliness um dick kais is is commenting on that uh, and I, I just want to read a little bit of what he has to say because I find it incredibly helpful. He says, what then does God do about our shame? He does not forgive it because so many of the things for which we feel shame are not moral problems which would need to be forgiven. God's answer is acceptance. God accepts us personally in our shame. Now think of that for a moment. In that moment when you feel every eye on you, with condemnation, God accepts you in that moment. If you think for a minute, you will see that acceptance is something beyond forgiveness. You can forgive someone and still not enjoy spending time with them or having them on your vacation with you. God's forgiveness is a legal act. We've broken the law and we plead guilty. The penalty for the crime is taken by another and we are acquitted. But the gospel goes beyond this. God not only forgives, but he accepts us personally, wanting to be with us because he loves us. In all our confusion, sin, shame, sin and shame, God welcomes us, not only out of duty, but because he loves us. Now that's a message of hope, isn't it? That's a message we need to hear. That's a message we need to believe, to recognize that we are free from the condemnation of God. Both the condemnation for not living up to our model and the condemnation for failing to live up to the moral standards of God. We're free from condemnation. We look at verse uh, 2 and he says, for if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. The just penalty, and the word is the just reward, is, is literally uh, the, the way that should be translated. We look at, uh, it's used in uh, Hebrews 11, 16, 26, 11, 26, and it says, Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Moses was looking to the reward to the just penalty for the righteous, if you will. Or we think of the just reward for the wicked. And we begin to understand it is, it is what is, is uh, appropriate. You might think of uh, Romans uh, 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. 
But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. But the wages, that which you have earned by sin, is death. The reward for our sin is death. And yet, Christ has taken that away. He's removed your guilt and your shame. Here's how that works. He removes your guilt in his passive obedience upon the cross. At that moment when he gave himself up upon the cross, and the nails were put in, he was raised up upon the cross. And he looks to the Father, and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Father reveals to him precisely why. It's at that moment that the wrath of God is, is poured out on Jesus, not in general, not just in a, in, if you were to just take a bucket and just kind of throw it on him. No, 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 no. Very precisely, for the this, this specific wrath that was deserved for each and every individual sin of each and every individual whose name is written in the book of life. It is precise so that Jesus pays that penalty specifically for you. So that your guilt, exactly and specifically, can be taken away. So that the Father can say, the guilt of your sin has been laid upon my Son. You bear it no longer. You are forgiven. But there, if you will, if our sin was, was our, our clothing and it was all filthy and God has taken it away, but then we stand naked. And if there's ever a place in our life where we feel ashamed, right? It's if we, we stand naked. We, we have, isn't it the common nightmare, right? You show up in a crowded room in, in just your underwear or, or whatever, right? It's like, ah, wait, this isn't right. I'm uncomfortable. Yeah, I feel that, that shame. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, and then they sinned and they covered themselves because they were ashamed. Shame has come in in that place. Well, taking away my sin and forgiving me doesn't take away that shame. I need something else. I need a righteous covering, which is the very obedience of Jesus, and that's his, his active obedience, that Jesus actively obeyed God. And it is as if he had this clothing that then he lays upon you. And it is now your clothing that you can walk about in. So that you see what Jesus has done is he's taken away both your guilt and your shame. So that you stand forgiven and accepted by God the Father. That's the gospel. That's what we want to embrace, that we are free from condemnation. Knowing that God's salvation is great. For it saves us from destruction. We love stories where we read about uh, someone risking their lives and saving the life of another person, right? It's just fantastic. And the bond that comes between the two, of the individual who, who, who's been saved and the one who saved him, and it becomes a magnificent uh, story of salvation. But the salvation that we've received is not just a salvation from death, but it's a story of salvation from eternal separation from all that is good. You see, there is no good outside of God. And when we're separated from Him, we're separated from everything that is good. If we think about an eternity separated from God, that is an eternity separated from love. It is an eternity separated from joy. It is an eternity separated from peace. 
It is an eternity separated from kindness. It's an eternity separated from all that is good. And it is that which Christ has saved us from. Is that a great salvation or what? That is the salvation which we have received in Jesus Christ. But not just that. He not only saves us from destruction. He saves us for himself. We are not saved sinners who are taken into heaven as slaves of the kingdom of God. That wasn't acceptable to God. He said, you must come into my kingdom as my child. He adopts us giving us all of the rights and privileges that belong to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He gives that to us. And He calls us His daughter and His son. His beloved children. And remember the parable of the the prodigal son. And when the father sees Him a long way off, He drops what He's doing and He runs to His son. And he embraces him, and his son tries to confess. He says, I'll have none of that. You are my son. And he embraces him. He says, go, get the robe and put the royal ring on his finger and kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party because this son was lost. And now he is found. And he's his son. And he rejoices in that. And God rejoices in you as his sons and as his daughters. And he brings you into his kingdom to have an intimate relationship with him giving you every blessing. Ephesians 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. How many spiritual blessings are yours? Every conceivable one. Because he withholds nothing from his children, right? That's a magnificent hope. And then he establishes an intimate relationship. Let's look at John 17 for just a moment. This is the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he's praying, think about this. that This is what Jesus is asking the Father right before he goes to the cross. This is his pleading with God the Father right before his passion. And this is what really matters to him. He says, the glory which you have given me... I, I wonder, did I say... Oh, verse... 22, yep, good. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. What a wonderful prayer, that he wants us to be one, us as the body of Christ to be one, just as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are one. That's why unity in the body is so important. That's why one of the things that God hates, remember the list of seven, is those who spread dissension among brethren. That's one of the seven things God despises. That's why... In the New Testament, there's one sin in particular that doesn't require Matthew 18. Two warnings, and as uh, the, the colloquialism goes, you give the right foot of fellowship. And that is factiousness. When you're spreading factions in the church. Now think about that, of how divided the church is often. And our hope is that Christ is going to work to bring that church together. And so we can pray with it and work for that, knowing that it is good. That's where he begins, that they may be one. But he goes on. He says, I in them... And you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, 
I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. That's Christ praying for an intimate relationship between his people and himself, isn't it? That's G- Is it even conceivable that God the Father said, no, we're not going to do that. There's no way. No way. For the Father is always going to grant what the Son has requested. This is the great salvation that is offered to us. And how does this salvation become ours? Through faith. Through believing that Jesus died for your sins and that he's raised again. Do you believe? Now maybe you've, you've, you've walked in the church your, your whole life and you've heard the message and, and I've heard of you know, pastors and elders who later in life, even as their office bearers, then come to faith. And that could be the case. And so we need to always look at ourselves, to examine ourselves, to see if we're in the faith. And to look at ourselves and say, do I... Do I believe this? That is to say, have I set my life to live consistent with that truth? I just want to invite every person here to be certain today that you're believing that. And if you haven't quite done that in the past, you kind of thought you did, then let today be the day in which you say, this is it. I'm walking through a valve, and there's no going back. I'm turning my mind and my heart toward God, and I'm going to follow Him in this gospel, which He's given to me, because how can I neglect so great a salvation as this. In this life, we are going to face obstacles and opposition, are we not? There's just no question. It's something that, that is going to be a, a challenge that we're going to have. We're going to face criticisms and distractions to our faith, are we not? What are we going to do with these? The author of Hebrews invites us to stay the course. Stay the course in the midst of that. To do that, you've got to pay attention to the Word of God. And you must embrace that gospel moment by moment. And then we can indeed stay the course. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this message, for your goodness, for your love. And Father, I pray for this congregation. I plead with you for all who are here and all who will hear these words that each and every one of them will embrace this gospel and will stay the course. Give us the grace, O God, that we may see this as a reality in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.